Thank you for downloading the Friday Night Comedy Podcast from Radio 4. To find out more, visit bbc.co.uk slash radio4. But not until you've enjoyed this week's news quiz. We present the news quiz with your host, Sandy Toxvig. Quiz. We start with a quote from Prince Harry, taken from the BBC News website, read by Harriet Cass. I haven't really had a shower for four days. I haven't washed my clothes for a week. It's very nice to be sort of a normal person for once. <laughs> and our thanks to the many people who sent that in. Now let's meet the teams. Will you welcome first on my right, Dr Phil Hammond and uh, Dr Kevin Day. <laughs> I think I'm going to give everybody titles today, I think. Uh, please welcome on my left, Professor Justin Edwards and Baroness Mark Steele. Uh, Phil, who wanted us to know the roof, the whole roof, and nothing but the roof this week? I suspect this uh, refers to a protest group with the catchy title of Plain Stupid, who, having stormed Heathrow and climbed aboard a jet, I think, on Monday, then decided to climb on top of the House of Commons, somehow managed to smuggle in a huge bloody poster... And some handcuffs through common security. Uh, no one's quite sure how. I don't know how they managed to get in and climbed on top of the commons, unraffled these huge things. But I think they've probably got a fair point. I probably don't need another runway. And I'm quite enjoying their protests, actually, because it's really irritating, BAA, and uh, they're really getting under people's skin. I'm looking forward to the next one now. Well, it's nice to see middle-class people getting on the roof themselves and not paying Bulgarians to do it for them. <laughs> and always nice to see a protest against air pollution that drew 20 fire engines and 100 police cars that wouldn't have been there. <laughs> They, in fact, they coughed themselves down off the roof in the end. I'm a bit nimby about it, because I live in Bristol, and I figure out if they have 18 runways and 42 terminals in Heathrow, they won't build another one in Bristol. So I'm all in favour. Build them all in Heathrow, none in Bristol. That's the south-west regional vote coming through. And anybody living in Slough, please write directly to Dr Hammond. <laughs> it's because it's so expensive. Well, the tra- like, it's because now, there's only a little bit of the day now left when you can go from London to sort of Manchester or Liverpool that is the normal, expensive, stupid, ridiculous fare. And then uh, if it's before 10 or after 3, it's 220 quid return to Liverpool. And they must send the staff on a special course where they learn how to ask for that amount and keep a straight face. <laughs> they must do. They must like, send them into a news agent's for a week where if someone comes in and asks for a Kit Kat, they say, yes, that'll be £43, just to, <laughs> to train them. I tried to get to Newcastle last weekend by train, and I said, I'd like to travel on Friday, and I'd like to come back on Sunday. And you'd think I'd ask the way to Frankenstein's Castle. So he just went, Sunday? Back from Newcastle? <laughs> I don't think so, sir. <laughs> I don't know why they spoke in a Cornish accent, but... <laughs> but they were clearly because he'd come up from Cornwall, Obviously. but to get back would have cost yeah. 750 quid. He just thought, I might as well live here by the platform and pretend I'm part of the staff. Actually, I, like, I quite like continental trains. I remember being in Florence and I wanted to go to Pisa and I went to the desk and I said, I'd like the next train to Pisa. And the woman said, ah, it's at 11 o'clock. I said, but it's 12 o'clock now. She said, well, you missed it. <laughs> She's now working for Network Rail, is she? She's, She's actually in charge now, I think. A friend of mine lives in Switzerland, and we were travelling from Switzerland to Italy on the train, and I said, do you know when you cross the border? He said, yeah, you know, but I'm not going to tell you how you know. And you know by the fact that suddenly the train stops about ten minutes, and the guard, who previously had been in this real kind of elaborate Nazi-type uniform, marching up and down the train, checking everybody's ticket, turned into a little bloke with a moustache and a slouch cap and no tie. He just sits in his booth for the rest of the journey. That's how you know you're in Italy. No one bothers checking the ticket anymore. 
Well, so is this sort of part of Rail Europe's uh, whole policy, is that the staff have to adopt National the stereotype stereotypes. of the country they're going to? <laughs> You'll know when you're in France, because they'll all start surrendering, all the staff. <laughs> Yes, the question was about the environmental campaigners who breached House of Commons security. That's the responsibility of the Speaker. He's not had a good week, has he? <laughs> they breached House of Commons security to unfurl a banner from the roof to protest against the building of a third runway and terminal at Heathrow. The activists from Plain Stupid. That's <laughs> what they call Air Force One when George Bush is on board. Um, <laughs> they went up in a lift. Do you not think that rather spoils the kind of daring do? <laughs> Eighth floor, roof activism. Um... <laughs> So, two points to the lovely Phil. Kevin, who won't be stepping away from an expensive argument? And it's... Uh, we've just mentioned him, actually. Well, I presume you're talking about the Speaker of the House of Commons, Mr Martin. Yes. Rather bizarrely, on Radio 4, they keep referring to as a sheet metal worker. <laughs> Although, how good he was at his previous job... <laughs> Yeah, uh, Mr. Martin, it hasn't been a good week for him, what we one thing or another, but the problem seems to be that his wife was taking taxis. £4,000 on a taxi bill to buy food, where does she go? Versailles? I mean, it's. What's wrong with Waitrose? It's not well, that well, far. What was ridiculous about it is the person who resigned, who had misled journalists about the taxis, was his spokesman. Talk about an unnecessary expense. Why does a speaker need a spokesman? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely bloody ludicrous. But they're all, he's leading the, uh, the whole inquiry into it, isn't he? Mm. At the speed of a glacier. And he's got all these people on board, like that famous Tory who got a quad bike on expenses to go to one end of his estate to the other. Uh, and Harriet Harman, who failed to declare all her expenses before becoming deputy leadership. So they've got all the usual lot. I think they call it the Chunder Club or something, and he's the president. Well, Michael Martin is chairman of the Members' Estimates Committee. Well, I was close. And the other thing is that they're all trying to say, well, it's actually incredibly complex. If you actually look at the rules and regulations, they're very complex. So you can't actually tell whether you're allowed to go shopping at Waitrose or whether you can order a gimp mask on... Uh... <laughs> On expenses, because it's very hard to decipher. Uh, it's always the gimp mask review, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I, I love it. The, there was a report from the Information Tribunal that came up with the radical suggestion that MPs could provide receipts to back up their expenses. <laughs> and I thought, this suggests they're not to be trusted. I think it's an outrage, really. I think it's a bit rich, though. Who are the people making the most fuss about filling receipts? It's journalists and newsreaders. This is shocking. There's a lot of pots calling a lot of kettles black here, I think. <laughs> I do think his wife, you're right, should have gone... Somewhere else to buy food. I'm assuming, because they live in Westminster, that their nearest kind of M&S Simply Food is probably Victoria Station. And that's where you'd go, to buy snacks for MPs. I don't know, we have our food delivered. I don't know why she wants to go and get it in the first place. Well, she should go to a cash and carry once a month, drop a lot of cocktail sausages, (laughs) some hula hoops. Well, I don't know if Fortnum's have a cash and carry, but yes, that's... (laughs) Uh, Yes, despite further stories emerging about his allegedly irregular use of expenses, Speaker of the House... Michael Martin has said he has no intention of stepping down and will continue to lead the inquiry into MPs' expenses and allowances. Apparently, Gordon Brown defended Mr Martin, saying he was a very good speaker. <laughs> it's pretty faint praise, isn't it? <laughs> Not far off saying, oh, I say, you can't off-talk that man. Um, Justin, why is sounding off about the sounding of the last post the last straw? Straw. Yeah, it's the clue. Straw Um, is the clue. uh, Yes, Jack, the post office and the astonishing revelation that certain MPs are hypocritical and untruthful, which was... Shocking. But they're, um, I think they are in this instance. It's Jack Straw and Jackie Smith and the other one, Jeff Hoon. Jeff Hoon. Plus three others, who I can't remember. 
And they've all been campaigning to save post offices in their constituencies, even though Jack Straw, Jackie Smith and Tessa Jowell were all on the committee or in the Cabinet when they sort of voted and decided to close 2,500 post offices, yet in their spare time there. Well, Jack Straw attended a demo in Blackburn to say, save my local post office. Jackie Smith organised a petition, got 1,000 people to sign it, it didn't work. And Jeff Hoon wrote on his website, it would be desperately sad if the post office were to close, and I hope that it does not. <laughs> and, well, yeah, absolutely. In the face of such powerful rhetoric, <laughs> yeah. it closed down last month. But I think it is... I think it is very hypocritical. There are three post offices in the Houses of Parliament within 100 metres of each other, and they're exempt from being closed. Is that right? Yeah. Of all the perks, though, that they have, like there's about 20 bars or something in the House of Commons and all that sort of thing, that's not the most scandalous, that they have three post offices. Like, if you went for a job and they went, three post offices, mm-hmm. all in the place, no do you ever need an envelope? Yeah. <laughs> You're never more than 17 yards. <laughs> Get to use the vacuum cleaner on a Wednesday. They got three post offices, 20 bars or whatever. Until very recently, they didn't have a single defibrillator. If you can think of somebody about to have a heart attack, a fat ovoid politician is probably top of the list. (laughs) (laughs) And they have to rely... Lord Darcy, bless him, who's trying to reform the NHS, somebody collapsed in front of him in the House of Lords. And he had to do a bit of mouth-to-mouth and a bit of 30 to 2. It's illegal to die in the House of Lords. Because <laughs> they have to carry them out and they can die in the corridor. They're not allowed to actually die. Not that when you're watching the debates you can tell which one. Does anybody here have a post office that's like the advert on telly? Light, bright and airy where Chris Eubank drops in every now and again for insurance. I can't get stamps in mine. I've just got this really cross old lady who looks like Bilbo Baggins at the end of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's my mother, thank you very much. <laughs> Well, Labour ministers have been accused of rank hypocrisy. Oh, you know, things are bad when you need an adjective on the front, don't you? (laughs) Uh, Rank hypocrisy because a third of the Cabinet, including Jack Straw, are campaigning against government plans to close 2,500 post offices. The full details of the closure are still to be announced by Pat McFadden, the Postal Affairs Minister. (laughs) Do you think there's a minister for for hypocrisy? Well, it could be two departments, the Minister of Kent and the Double Standard Secretary, but who knows? (laughs) Uh, Two points to Justin Mark. Who's going nowhere in a hurry? This will be the people who... Um, the trouble is, every time I'm on here, I have a rant about the railways, and I think I've exhausted all my stories. Well, here's, I'll tell you what. News Quiz was on feedback earlier today. Uh, well, yesterday, if you're listening to the repeat. And apparently, there's a general belief that uh, the News Quiz is too left-wing. So why don't you answer the question as right-wing as you possibly can? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's no wonder that the railways are crap since we've had the Eurostar because we've got all them foreign trains coming <laughs> over here. Now. That's yeah. the they, they come over here taking our sleepers, using up our signals. We've got our own bloody signal failures. We don't need them coming over from France. We bailed them out in 1940, bloody four, and now they <laughs> It's the same as the bloody earthquake. Bloody tectonic plates coming over here. <laughs> shifting our bloody inner crust. I'll tell you what... <laughs> And we never, in our day, you see, in our, when I was young, you weren't allowed to bloody... If you were 0.3 on the Richter scale, you got a clip round the ear from the local Bobby. <laughs> These days, they're allowed to rumble and shake and all sorts of bloody rubbish. Oh, that's a disgrace. I wouldn't bloody have them in the room. <laughs> See the Israeli minister uh, this week who said that gays cause earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's good, actually, because last year the Bishop of Carlisle said gays cause floods. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a great punishment from God for the homosexuals, isn't it? Streets full of soldiers with the stripped off and <laughs> <laughs> 
really at the earth. Have we got an earthquake question? No, uh, no I don't think so. Oh, paid God, no attention. Well, well, no, 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 you can talk about it. Oh, no, it was brilliant. It was the news. Oh, it was just so fantastically English. The first quarter of an hour of the BBC News was on the earthquake. And there was a guy doing that thing, a helicopter, and he was doing all that. This is the news and it is serious. A most extraordinary event has taken place beneath me is Market Raisin, where the earthquake has taken place. You can see the devastation all around. Just below me, if you look closely, there is a gnome that slipped three inches <laughs> down towards the rockery in the house of number 13. Maybe up to £14 worth of damage has been done in the epicentre. It said in Hull it did £10 million worth of damage. In Hull? <laughs> £10 million worth of damage in Hull. Yeah. They knock it down, build it up, and knock it down again. <laughs> anyway, the question was about network rail. Oh, yeah. Um... <laughs> yeah, they've been, they've been yeah, they've done, got... they, again. They got... oh, I don't know. Just on re- feedback was re- the presentation re- style has changed, and that is because, <laughs> generally, I have no idea what is going on. Now... <laughs> They got fined £14 million pounds or two day returns Kevin to Carlisle. Kevin can have an extra point hey, for actually bringing us back. And, yes. did it, and the chair got a knighthood. On the same day yeah. that uh, Network Rail were fined a record £14 million, pounds, he was knighted. And I have to say, there can't have been many people he'd let near him with a large blade on that day. <laughs> the commonest reason for me writing out sick notes now is first great Western stress. People get off that train 14 hours late and, yeah, it just pips irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> It's a 21st century disease. Well, apparently the delays... I'll give them all Prozac, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute, Phil. Uh, yes, we're all going nowhere, at least if it's by train. Network Rail has been fined a record £14 million for train delays over Christmas. The fine was imposed by the Office of Rail Regulation. Can I just say, I'm using the full title there because I think that off-rail uh, <laughs> conjures up the wrong sort of thing. <laughs> Uh, and at the end of that, Justin and Mark have got four points, but Phil and Kevin are in the lead with five. <laughs> we start round two with an eyewitness report of the recent earthquake from Channel 4 News. I thought my husband... <laughs> <laughs> I thought my husband had passed wind. <laughs> he thought I'd fallen out of bed. My mother thought I'd fallen down the stairs. <laughs> And then my husband came downstairs to see if everything was all right in his underpants. And our thanks go to Simon Malloy of Hackney for that. Phil, whose uppers may in fact be a downer. Well, slightly unfair, in a sense. What we found is that antidepressants do work, but for most people with mild to moderate depression, they don't work any better than sugar pills. So they do work, but so does the famous placebo. Uh, They probably still do work if you've got very severe depression. But there are two stories here. The first one, I guess, is that uh, Big Pharma, who fund all the trials, also control the information. So for years, any trial they've done that they don't like the results of, nasty side effects or haven't shown it to work, they hide in the cupboard under the sink. And any trial that does work, uh, they pay a lot of money to get it printed in the BMJ or the Lancet or whatever. So um, clearly, we can't be left-wing and nationalise the pharmaceutical industry, but we could at least try and take control over the information from them. I think the other thing that's quite interesting is that the power of the placebo. I have long advocated that we should bring back the placebo. Years ago, we used to be able to prescribe acminth pep, which was peppermint water, or pilula panis, which was a bread pill. A bit like feeding the birds, really. And um, they work for just absolutely everything. If you buy my fabulous book, Medicine Balls, you get a 1,000 free tablets of Dr. Phil's Magical Healing Love Potion. Um, It's entirely natural from me. Uh, It... it... (laughs) 
and I thoroughly recommend it for everything. Um, if you're really depressed, it's worth having antidepressants. If you're just a bit pissed off or melancholy or, or Scottish, uh, it... <laughs> The tablets aren't going to work because there's no chemical imbalance to correct. You're saying no drugs work? No, I'm not saying they're not work, but clearly drug companies want to sell you drugs. It's not rocket science, isn't it? And if they control the data, they're going to buff and polish and spin the data to make the drugs look as if they work better than they do. You look worried, Mark. Has your doctor been pushing you something and saying you look... (laughs) Honest to goodness, Mr Steele, the change in you is remarkable. But if if you're saying that, you know, you might as well have a sugar pill, placebo, can I therefore cure pretty much anything by eating a bag of sweets? The drugs that people take are drugs that seem to work, improve their symptoms. So if you have a drug that gives you an erection, you're going to take it. Oh, yes. <laughs> so the secret probably is to prescribe blood pressure tablets and combine them with recreational drugs. Because what are you more likely to take? A tablet that makes you fall over when you stand up or a tablet that makes you stand up and hug people and kiss them and then fall over? Can you say that a bit more slowly? Combine them? Blood- <laughs> Surely you're tempted, Phil, when somebody comes in and says, oh, Doctor, I've got terrible depression, to say, oh, snap out of it, stop whinging. Surely there's a temptation there. Yes, well, that's sort of a euphemism for cognitive behavioural therapy. Um... (laughs) (laughs) But if we could bring back the placebo, we used to give water injections, bloody marvellous. We used to give Guinness, we used to prescribe Christmas puddings on the NHS. (laughs) Bring back all the good old stuff that makes people feel better. Yeah, it starts with Christmas pudding. Before you know it, it's mince pies, it's all sorts of things. Bloody hell, you'd need a big glass of water, wouldn't you? That's, <laughs> but that's the point. There are always side effects about going to see a doctor. The way to save the NHS is not to use it. Uh, <laughs> and there are so many people, because it's free at the point of delivery, it's loads of people go there because they're not actually terribly unwell. I specialise in that. I'm quite good. If people aren't actually sick, I'm brilliant because I just, you know, give them a placebo bit of chat out the door. If you're genuinely ill, I'm probably not the doctor for you because I've... You know, <laughs> I've got to look it up on Professor Google and all that. It gets slightly embarrassing, man. <laughs> when you sit all those exams, is yeah. that what you say? When they say, and uh, how are you going to sort of run your practice when you're actually a GP yourself? Well, I'll be fine with the people who've got nothing wrong with them. <laughs> and all the others I will give a Christmas pudding to. <laughs> This week, big pharmaceutical companies have come under fire for selling antidepressants that are no better than sugar pills. The government is publishing plans for people to tackle depression without taking pills. Some of their suggestions include snapping out of it and pulling yourself together. Although their top tip for getting out of a slump is to get yourself (laughs) nationalised. Justin, why is length important to a teenager? There's no need to compare, boys, quietly. It's the length of your... Is the length of your amygdala? Your amygdala, indeed. Which does sound like a fern that maiden aunt might own. But it's a part of your brain that, if you are a a very stroppy teenager, is bigger. I don't know what use that is at all. I mean, I'm no doctor. I've dabbled. Kittens, that kind of thing. (laughs) I can only assume that the way to stop teenagers being stroppy is to remove their brains. Is that right, Phil? Yeah, I'm just trying to remember about the amygdala. I think, I'm not sure whether I fell asleep in that lecture. I think... <laughs> I also think it's fantastic. This is true. Part of the controlled experiment in Australia was they sat down 157 teenagers and then interrupted them towards the end of Neighbours to see what happened. <laughs> so, so they checked their stroppiness rating. Is that, is that, is that experience the amygdala? I do, it, I is mean, at, I do. it is at St Thomas's, darling. I don't oh, know. Is it? it depends which medical school you went to, but at Tommy's, it was amygdala. It's like amygdala or something in Greek. If it's Greek, it'll be like, huh, won't it? I'd get something for that if I was you. It sounds great. <laughs> Christmas pudding might do it. Yeah. <laughs> Orally, or... <laughs> and, 
Always with the gimp mask. Oh, yeah. <laughs> are, are they that stroppy? I'm sort of when you're travelling about, you know, this thing about teenagers are overrunning the shopping malls and Arndale centres of our cities and all that sort of thing. I suppose if you're from London, you know, you have a different perspective. You go to Norwich or something, and there'll be about six 14-year-olds there with their hoods and in the Arndale centre, like they're going, yeah, like, give it up for the cattle market massive. <laughs> Uh, scans of adolescent brains have shown that the intensity of their tantrums correlates directly with the length of their amygdalas, a little-known region of the brain. It's like the Norfolk of the skull. <laughs> uh, so, at the end of round two, Justin and Mark have got eight points, but Phil and Kevin are still in the lead with ten. Before we start round three, here is a very unfortunate piece of writing spotted on the BBC website about the traditional Shrove-tide football match. In 2003, His Royal Highness Prince Charles turned up the ball. He'd agreed to start the game for the two previous years, but had to cancel due to foot and mouth, which forced the cancellation of the game and the death of his aunt, Princess Margaret. (laughs) And our thanks to Simon Reeves for that, and on behalf of our colleagues in BBC News. Sorry, Mum. Phil, who took a break from making the coffee? I think uh, this refers to Starbucks, mm. whose uh, profits are apparently going in the pan. Uh, so they decided to take all their staff... I think it's just in the US, I don't think it's over here, to take all their staff out of action for a couple of hours, teach their baristas how to give their patrons an authentic espresso experience. <laughs> and they've got, on a, I don't know, half-a-day training exercise to help people. They want their customers to emotionally connect with their coffee. Do you not think they could reconnect with their customers by introducing proper names for small, medium and large? Do you not think that? Or putting more than homeopathic quantities of coffee in the caramel, foam and boiling water and not putting a 12-inch spoon with a sharpened edge in the cup. And the experience of coffee is all in the nose. You smell coffee, you can't taste it. If you put a peg what? on your nose, you can't taste coffee at all. You're very convinced. It's purely olfactory. you are like somebody that you meet in the corner of a pub. <laughs> There is no such country as Germany. (laughs) Starbucks closed its 7,100 stores across America for three hours so its staff could learn how to make coffee. Uh, Last year's shares in the company dropped in value by 42%. Luckily, we were spared because Starbucks in the UK has enjoyed single-digit growth for years. Hmm. Wonder which (laughs) finger that is. (laughs) Kevin, who's in a whirl about a load of tenors? It's Glyndebourne. David Attenborough's been giving evidence to a new inquiry about whether or not they open a, a wind turbine at Glyndebourne. Now, you may be expecting me to be all chippy on the shoulder about this and prolier than now, but I actually am a big fan of opera. I've been to Glyndebourne. It's fantastic. They don't like you singing along, but apart from that... <laughs> I did point out for 150 quid a ticket, I want requests and the hokey-cokey. <laughs> But, um, of course, a lot of the people in Sussex have decided that... And one actually said, it's, this is not a NIMBY thing, I just don't want it in my backyard. <laughs> but saying, they're, they're saying, well, I think it's a terrible thing. It will distract people from the opera. So, well, if the opera is so tedious that you actually have to leave the building and go and look at a windmill instead, <laughs> this tells you everything you need to know about opera. I assume Glyndebourne was powered by a giant auger or something. <laughs> to cut their carbon dioxide emissions, couldn't they just get the singers to take shallower breaths? Surely that would be it. Well, they could get the fatter opera singers to sort of run around in a hamster wheel to power... <laughs> to, to power the opera. The fantastic end works. to Tosca, yeah. that would be. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
no wonder she died at the end. <laughs> uh, Sir David Attenborough has caused consternation amongst conservationists at a public inquiry by speaking up in favour of a wind turbine at Glyndebourne. The move is opposed by the Campaign to Protect Rural England, the Open Spaces Society and the Ramblers Association. We tried to get a quote from the Ramblers Association, but they simply wouldn't get to the point. Uh, <laughs> I love the idea of a group of people. Who's, well, actually, Mark, you could be president. It would be a marvellous thing. <laughs> Mark, which creatures have done swimmingly in counting class... Oh, is this this old dinosaur? No, uh, swimmingly. Um, Creatures have done... Fish can count to four. (laughs) But they've only got two second memories, so they'd get to two and forget they can count to four and then start again. You look bewildered, Mark. Yeah, I do look bewildered, yeah. yeah. I I always do on this programme. I'd think to myself, I'm on the news quiz, I'd better follow the news, earthquakes, and instead it's about (laughs) fish counting to four. (laughs) (laughs) Make it up. Did you get it off Phil earlier? (laughs) Yeah, actually. Fish can actually count to four. (laughs) They've done some research with some uh, mosquito fish. I don't know who came up with this idea, but basically they found that if you sexually harass a female mosquito fish, it will swim away, obviously, and it will swim to the largest shoal, okay? Because it wants safety numbers, it wants to hide amongst other So basically they found that if, if you... They sexually harass the fish first, and then they have one fish behind one screen and two behind the other, and it'll swim towards the two. Then they had three and four, it'll swim towards the four. Once you got more than four, it couldn't tell the difference between four and five or five and six. It couldn't do percentages, and it wasn't very good at decimals. <laughs> the thing is, so once the, you, you started as, with you sexually harass the fish, <laughs> do you think anything has any validity after that? <laughs> when you stand there over the bowl going, go oh, show us your gills. <laughs> study performed by the University of Padua has shown that mosquito fish can count up to four. This ability puts the fish in the same intellectual league as apes and the board of Northern Rock. (laughs) The fish tested were able to recognise a shoal of four fish, although police estimates place the shoal at nearer three. (laughs) Before we reveal the final scores, let's hear the cuttings the teams have brought along, Phil. This is from Mrs Laura Swabe from Westmoors in Dorset, and it's an article about obesity in primary school pupils, something close to my heart. A lot of this is simply down to the fact that children aren't getting enough exercise. We need to make physical activity a core subject. Do we want brilliant mathematicians who can read and write, but are so fat they die early? Or do we want well-rounded children? <laughs> Kevin. This is from Richard Luke of Steeple Ashton in West Wiltshire. Firefighters were baffled when they were called out to rescue a horse stuck knee-deep in mud. Eleven firefighters, two fire engines, a multi-role vehicle, a rural officer and a fire officer turned up to help with the rescue in Southampton, but then discovered that it was a pony with short legs. (laughs) Justin. Uh, This is from uh, Mr Philip Kite from Ripley in Surrey. It's about snooker. It's someone talking, watching Ronnie O'Sullivan, who frequently uses his left hand rather than stretch with a cue extension for an awkward shot. One can see the tremendous advantage he gains over his opponents. Fred Davis used to do that too, but for a different reason, as the commentator Ted Lowe once inadvertently revealed on television, saying, Fred Davis, the doyen of snooker, now 67 years of age and too old to get his leg over, prefers to use his left hand instead. <laughs> Mark. Uh, This is from Viv Moriarty, and it's from the Gisborne Herald. A notice that says, Alzheimer's Society of Gisborne. Potato in a bucket competition this Wednesday. But don't forget to bring your potato in the bucket. (laughs) 
Let's take a look at the final score. Justin and Mark have got 12 points, but this week's winners are Phil and Kevin with 13 points. Before we leave you, here's a letter from the South Wales Echo sent in by Andrew Stallard. My mother always told me if you can't say something good about a person, don't say anything. We all have different senses of humour and our own ideas about celebrities. I can't stand Bruce Forsyth or Terry Wogan, but I wouldn't dream of writing to a newspaper to say so. (laughs) And with that, goodbye. Taking part in the news quiz were Phil Hammond, Kevin Day, Justin Edwards and Mark Steele. In the chair was Sandy Toxley, and the news was read by me, Harriet Cass. The chair's script was written by Lucy Clark, Simon Littlefield and Suk Panu, with additional material by James Sherwood and Stephen Carlin. The producer was Ed Morrish. Again, to any of our comedies on Radio 4, please go to bbc.co.uk/slash radio4/slash comedy.